Hello everybody, this is Dave Parry from Wellmeadow and you're listening to the SME Growth Podcast. Now most business owners want to grow their businesses and we'll be discussing loads of great ideas on how to get more leads and convert them into customers. Now this week we invited a leading economist, Roger Martin Fagg, to Shrewsbury to give a talk on the economy around the time of the autumn statement. And so today's podcast is the audio from the live stream feed from that event. Hope you enjoy it. And just to run through the timings for you, we're getting getting going now about half past five. We've got an hour of Roger giving uh, all of his updates in condensed into an hour as much as he can. And then about half six, we'll open it up to questions from the floor and we'll have a good half an hour at least to sort of debate Q&A. And I'll come around with this microphone uh, so that people can hear your questions. And then at about seven, we'll, we'll call it a day for the more formal sitting, now se- sitting down session. And the buffet will have arrived at the back. There's still more beers. And we're allowed to stay in here for another hour or so and be kicked out about eight o'clock. Just so you're aware, we're combining this as an in-person event and a live stream this time for our first time ever. Just wanted to give that a go. So if you want to later on pop over and have a chat with Sam and Verity, who are managing all the tech in the uh, studio control room over the back there. But just be aware we've got 30 or so people over the UK joining us uh, live uh, watching what's going on. So mind your language. Uh, any of those questions? And I know some of you. Uh, quick round of thanks because I, I won't have time to do this at the end. Thanks a lot for the Museum and Art Gallery for hosting us. I think we'll all agree this is a fantastic facility to have for this sort of event. Thanks a lot for the Business Improvement District as well. Steph's here representing the bid this evening. They've sponsored the event to the tune of Rogers Hotel for, t- for tonight to show off the wonders of what Shrewsbury has to offer. Thanks for Rob and Hannah from Sound Innovations, all our lights and mics and speakers and amps. So thanks a lot for all of that. That's great. Uh, Verity for helping us with all the marketing of the event. Sam's been doing some of these amazing animations you may have seen on the on the wall at the back, and we'll see more of those later. And both of them are on the control desk, as I say, pushing buttons and twiddling knobs. Um, and just a quick uh, summary. Most of you know who we are as Wellmeadow. We're a, a data-driven growth agency and we help everything at board level, at strategy and board support for companies, but we also do a lot of work on lead generation. And you will have no doubt seen lots of those efforts from all the marketing material you've received for for this event, if nothing else. So have a look around and see what else you'd like on that and feel free to ask some questions later on. So quick intro to Roger, as if he needs any at all. I know an awful lot of you have seen Roger before, either here or elsewhere. And as you also know, we publish uh, Roger's quarterly economic forecast report. And a number of the people online today, actually, are people that have downloaded that report and aren't local to Shrewsbury, but they know of Roger through that. So uh, that works well for us, and it gives us a connection with the companies we work with as a good bit of information to send out. Triggers an awful lot of good discussions, as you can imagine. Um, So Finally, then to Roger, I think this is our fourth or maybe fifth time we've invited you in person, fifth now, so roughly once a year or so, as well as the quarterly reports. The second time we've been in this venue, last time we were all pacing out two metres apart and ditching our masks to the door and all that stuff. Um, So thanks a lot again for coming back. Uh, Roger, if you didn't catch his end of year uh, economic forecast, produces an annual school report. Which he, well, which he marks himself on his forecasts and always does uncannily well. Though I do have to bone to pick, he didn't predict the Ukraine war, which has rather scuppered all of his forecasts. So apparently this year was going to be a nice, steady, boring year, 5% inflation, nothing to worry about on energy, 
and possibly even jumping to a quick general election while the mood was high in the country. That was what Boris was going to do, apparently. So it um, didn't quite work out like that. So without any further ado, I'll hand over to Roger. We've got a, an hour's worth and save up your questions. And from half six, we'll do a Q&A. Thank you, Roger. David, thank you. Good evening. Isn't this impressive? I mean, first time I was here, it was about six of us and a flip chart down in the university, down by the river. So this is great. Thank you all for coming. I am going to really push through a lot of data in the next hour, and then I'm going to allow half an hour for chat. Is that okay? Brilliant. So I'm going to get straight into it. Look, people forget, particularly in government, that what is a country's production isn't anything to do with big companies. 99% of all the registered businesses on the earth are small businesses. And uh, in the UK, 61% of the workforce is employed by companies that employ less than 250 people. And SMEs supply more than half the gross domestic product, which is the income generated in our country. So we're very tempted, aren't we, to think that it's big business that makes a country wealthy. It's not. It's small companies. And uh, it's quite clear the government in recent months don't understand the difference between wealth and income. Because uh, although she's no longer prime minister, she said her budget was to increase wealth. Uh, no. Wealth isn't something you can spend. It's the value of land, it's value of a fixed asset, it could be value of your share portfolio. But if you want to spend that wealth, you've got to turn it into cash. You've got to liquidate it effectively. And if you take the UK, uh, our wealth is 15 trillion, that's the estimate. The income generation is just under 2 0.5 trillion. So if you look at our national debt, which is nearly 2.5 trillion, it's not a big deal in relation to our wealth. And if you run a business, the gearing is what? 13% somewhere around there? And that's not a problem. The problem is the cost of financing that debt. So the Chancellor tomorrow is going to be talking about stabilising the national debt. It's been rising dramatically in the last two years. He's not going to be talking about getting rid of the national debt. And uh, so I think the budget tomorrow is going to be quite boring. The overall objective is to restore our reputation with global markets after Truss and Quateng completely trashed it. Uh, so it would be boring, steady, 60% of it will be tax raising, 40% uh, of it will be something to do with getting government more efficient, which is effectively cuts. Uh, will you all go broke as a result? No. Uh, will it be a big hit? No. What's going to happen is they're going to keep the allowances fixed, and over the next few years that means we will pay more tax but not as a percentage rate. That's what I reckon is going to be there. Uh, if it's anything different, I'm finished. Okay. <laughs> now, 
Just a bit of context, 60% of global growth comes from those three regions. The United States, number one still. The EU, number two. China, number three. And we get 25% of our income as a nation selling to those top two. <clears throat> so if those two top two catch a flu, we, we catch a cold. We are not a little island nation. We are integrated with the global system. What happens elsewhere really does affect us. And as you can see, in terms of global economic power, we don't have a huge amount. We're only 2.5% of the global system. Right, now then, a bit of context. This is investment spending in the UK. Investment spending is primarily how you drive up productivity. And you'll see after the big crash, 2008-2010, investment spending recovered. It was a bit volatile. It always is. And then in 2016, we had that vote. And that vote created the biggest uncertainty for business you could imagine. And you can see the consequence. CapEx, investment spending, has been completely flat since 2016. That is why our productivity is poor. And we're going to have to, it's going to take seven years to catch up this deficit. Now, why did investment not happen? Was it due to corporation tax? Most certainly not. It was due to uncertainty. And think of any business, you've probably got the chief exec saying, I want to do this, this, and this, and the marketing people want to do this. And there's the finance director saying, I can't read the environment. I don't know what the nature of the trade deal is going to be. I just don't know. And I tell you what, we are not spending that money till we've got some line of sight. That's where we are. And this is our corporation tax rate. And you can see it's lower than other G7 countries. And you'll see that Germany there, their CT rate is 27%. They invest 24% of their GDP. Our tax rate is the lowest. We invest 17 So you can draw your own conclusion from that. Now, in the UK, when people are talking about investment, they often talk about property. And... Uh, it's instructive to take out of the data investment in real estate, a dwelling, a house. And that black line there is our dwellings excluded investment spend. And you can see that we've underperformed our neighbours uh, just where we are. You note Italy has been performing best, and a lot of people have said to me, how come that's happened? Well, Drahi became their prime minister. Drahi used to be uh, president of the, uh, the European Central Bank. Safe pair of hands, knows what he's doing. They were confident that there was a government that was stable and going to not do silly things. And we don't have to talk about our experience, but... Uh, you all know how many prime ministers we've had over the last few years, more than Italy, as it happens. 
So if you look at our productivity, we were doing pretty well up to 2008. Then there was the crash. Our productivity fell back. Uh, it fell back in all major economies. We weren't alone there. But since then, I'm afraid our productivity's dropped. We are a bit above Italy, but that's it. And uh, this, this means that when government says we're going for 2.5% economic growth, we actually don't have the capacity to do that. I'm going to show you a bit more of that later. Now then, just to be really miserable, uh, this is post-tax income per person. It's an average. And you'll see, if you can see that, basically 2016 compared to 2021, no improvement in real terms. I'm going to talk a bit more about it later, but we've been suffering under the money illusion, mostly because the value of our shares and our house has gone up. Uh, I won't, uh, that's just giving you more, and that's giving you house price changes. You know what they are. I'm, I'm moving through these quickly to get into this one. This shows you where wealth is. Remember, wealth is not spending power. Wealth is not income. And uh, the most important thing to note there is the bottom third of people in the UK have no wealth. They also have no pension apart from state pension. And uh, that bottom third have not enjoyed any money illusion in the sense that, well, my salary hasn't gone up, but the value of my house has. So I'm doing all right. The further you move up the chart, the more an increase in personal taxation is not a, I mean, it's a pain, but it's not terminal. So we're trying to look ahead the next couple of years, and it's very simple to do it. Uh, money supply, that is money that's created by banks when they make a loan. Money supply goes into our system and then you and I spend it. Uh, the speed at which it passes through the system depends on a whole series of behavioural things. But the core driver is unemployment, what's happened to house prices, and the media. And many of you probably have been listening to the media in the last few weeks and you might have concluded that the world is going to end. Um, the reporting has been awful and I want to try and address some of those comments. Money supply we know about. Velocity is something we can only measure in arrears. So uh, that's why a lot of economists don't like this simple relationship. It's the V which isn't predictable. So, let's think about it. The economy is just like a big hose pipe. So if you think of a garden hose, you attach one end to the tap on the wall, you turn the tap on, and then, depending how long the hose is, there's a lag, 
And what comes out of the nozzle is equal to what in, went in at the tap end. And the economy is just like a great big hose pipe. What goes in one end is money supply. What comes out the other end is this thing called nominal GDP, which is essentially profits, wages and salaries. Okay, so let's look at what has happened in the last two and a half years in the world. A huge amount of money was created by central banks all around the world, paid across to their government, and their governments used it to maintain capacity, furlough schemes, investment schemes. 17 trillion of new money was created. That is the equivalent, well, it's the same as the Chinese economy. So why have we got inflation? It's so simple. Imagine another China has arrived on the Earth's surface. Another China. But it hasn't brought with it any new products or services. There's no change in available stuff. But there's 17 trillion of incomes. The inflation is very simply the market trying to allocate scarce resource in relation to monetary demand. And so far, it's doing a pretty good job because already the purchasing power of that 17 trillion is eroding. You can do the arithmetic. The global inflation rate is 8%. Ours is now 11, you've probably just heard. And that means that our purchasing power, the, the money we have, we, we, can only, we can buy 10% less with it. And this is the good news. Because it's doing that, our economy is getting back to normal. The last two years have been totally abnormal. You'll know with your businesses, you've had periods where your sales have done that, and then you've had periods where your sales have been at record levels. And it's been very difficult to manage. One minute you're up, then there's a lockdown, then you're up again. And uh, basically now it seems that we've got COVID under control. We've got to get our economy back to basically the pre uh, 1990, pre-2020 trend. And inflation's doing that. Because you're all now thinking, well, tell us what's going to happen. You will find, many of you, that the first quarter of this year was a record quarter. Never been busier. And you, many of you might find that it's still not bad. The second quarter was not quite as hot. And now some of you are finding mm, it's beginning to wobble a little. This wobble is demand moving back to the sustainable level, which it will be at this time next year. This time next year, our inflation rate should be down to around 5 or 6%. And by the beginning of 24, hopefully it could go as low as 4 it's not going to go as low as two. So we are going to have a recession. 
And lots of people have got terribly exercised about it. It's not a big deal. Let me explain why. From time to time, we go to our food cupboard at home and we, open, we take a bottle of something and it says best before 1996. <laughs> and uh, normally the other person in the household said that, says that's going in the bin. And if it's me, I say there's nothing wrong with it. You know, HP sauce doesn't go off. You can have it for 30 years. But it does go in the bin, and of course, when you're putting the bins out, you rescue it and put it back. <laughs> I know you do. Uh, but you see, what, an, what a, a recession is, is a clear out of the nation's food cupboard. Since 2008, there are, there are businesses that are only surviving because the bank can't afford to ditch them. And during furlough, there are a lot of businesses who got a lot of help, but actually, they're only marginal businesses. And the problem is, these businesses have got resources that you could use better. And we need those businesses to die. And the quicker they die, the better for all of us. So there'll be a huge amount of insolvencies over this next six months and the press will go on but you'll find that the majority of those businesses are what I call zombie businesses. There will be one or two businesses that go and they may have, been, they may have had potential to be very good but they borrowed too much and their balance sheet had too much debt in it which at the debt price of course is doubled in a lot of cases. So what will that do to total growth? It will reduce it by about 1.5%. When the media say it's going to be a repeat of 2008, rubbish. I don't know whether you heard the Governor of the Bank of England saying this will be the longest recession in recent history. The man's a lunatic. No, seriously, I think I know why he said it. And it would have been a conversation, I'm an ex-Treasury economist, it would have been a conversation between Hunt and him. And Hunt would say, how can we change the wage bargaining? You know, I've got public sector people asking for 17%. And the governor said, well, the only way to do it is threaten a deep recession and then people say, well, maybe we shouldn't ask for this because we'll lose our job. I think that's the game he was playing. If he wasn't playing that game, he really is being stupid. It's not going to be long. It's not going to be particularly deep. And you'll say to me, why is that? Long, deep recessions take place when the banking system stops lending. If you look at British banks, they have got loads of lending capacity. They want to lend, they will lend. And indeed, 70% of British banks' lending is mortgages. So you've heard all this stuff, house prices could fall 15%. No. Why? Banks are a business. Their mortgage business is like a little business. 
large volume, low margin. So if you're a bank today in Britain, you've got to have volume. And you've got to get volume from the low-cost supply, which is mortgages. It's all, it's all mechanised. It's all algorithms. So that's the first point. The second point is that in August this year, the rules for mortgage providers changed. Since 2014, a mortgage provider had to ensure that the borrower could maintain their existing lifestyle in the event of their mortgage going up, interest rate going up 3%. And you'll know that basically that's exactly what's happened. So anyone who took a mortgage out after 2014 should be, yeah, they'll be on the edge, but they won't be over it. The good news is that, well... I'm not sure it's good news. That rule was abolished August the 1st this year. So banks now do not have to establish that the borrower could maintain their lifestyle in the event of interest rates going up, which means the banks will try and flog more money, which means the supply of mortgages actually is not going to go down, it's going to go up. But I think house prices will be flat which means the real price is dropping. More of that later. So that's the global system. Global money supply rose by 14%. Normally, money supply in the global economy rises at 5%. So you can see how excessive that is. But globally, the system is moving to balance. End of next year. These charts just show you the extent of excess demand. The left-hand chart, I think, is the most indicative. That's the price of shipping a container from China or Asia to here. Pre-COVID, around two and a half grand. Then you saw what happened, and you see those prices are now coming back. And when we hear container shipping costs are around, allow a bit for fuel, under three grand, we'll know the system has got into balance. This is a lovely example of imbalance. The first quarter of this year, we had the worst trade deficit ever. It was nearly 8% of our GDP. And that is because we were sucking in raw materials, semi-finished goods, to try and meet order books, demand. <coughs> In fairness, we know Putin went into uh, Ukraine uh, end of February, and that did change the price of energy. We are a major importer of energy, and so therefore that is why we have the deficit. It will be coming down as we speak. So, now, a little test for you. I want you to think of the garden hose pipe again, right? And this is this year, this is where we are. And the amount of money going into our pipe now is growing at 5%. But the value of what's coming out of our pipe right now is growing by 12%. So, how can that be? Well, of course, there's a time lag. 
what's coming out of our pipe is growing at 12% because a year ago, what was going into our pipe was growing at 14%. But here we can make the forecast. If we've only got 5% going growth of money into our pipe, then over this next 16 months or so, something will have to give. Either prices will have to come down, or if prices remain at 10%, the economy has to shrink by 5 That's We can't control how that's going to work. My view is prices will come down, and come down sharply, middle of next year. It could all go wrong if it's a very, very cold winter. That's, that's the one that causes the problem. If it's a very, very cold winter, our recession will be deeper than I'm forecasting. But I'm also hoping something. Markets do work, and we know that the price of natural gas is elevated, but you should know there are 32 LPG bulk carriers moored off the uh, European coast waiting to unload. The Europeans have filled their gas reservoirs, they're full for the winter. So actually, demand for that gas is falling at a time when the supply has risen dramatically. We could see a significant fall in energy prices if it's a mild winter coming March, April next year. And that of itself will take the reported inflation rate down by about 4%. So we'll be close to 6 or being well, May next year. That's good news. Mind you, if it's a terribly cold winter, we're stuffed. So. <laughs> So, an important indicator here is the money supply. Here is the money supply. It's that blue line. And uh, normally, that money supply rises by 5% a year. That's what the Bank of England tries to achieve. That's why it moves interest rates up or down. It's to, it's to tap turning on or turning down. And um, the orange line you can see there is the growth in bank lending. Now, when the economy is normal, those two lines pretty much match each other. Because when the economy is normal, the Bank of England isn't creating any money. It's not doing any quantitative easing. Where that blue line is above the orange line, the Bank of England is involved. So that's up to 2013. You can see money supply growing, but bank lending actually shrinking. Then you go 2020 and you see that huge bubble, that's the 450 billion created by the Bank of England to finance COVID support. You might be interested to note that, look, there's an uptick in the blue line. This is September data. And that uptick is uh, the last week of September the Bank of England had to rescue some pension funds. Now, if you were going to be slightly political, and I will be, 
that trust Kwakang budget cost us around 27 billion. So there's 19 billion of support from the central bank and the other is the increase in the interest bill as a result of the collapse in bond prices. It's called the moron discount. <laughs> I expect that blue line to go back to 5% uh, this month. And I expect over this next year to sit around 5%. Now the interesting point, there is no case for the Bank of England to raise interest rates. Interest rates is the way you control this blue line. It's normal. So I think interest rates will rise a little bit more because of the inflation. But it won't, they won't, base rate won't go above 3.75, I think, now. And if any of you are worried about your fixed rate mortgage um, and you're going up for a renewal, uh, I think the Hunt budget tomorrow will satisfy the big lenders, the government, and they'll be happy with a yield of around 4% on government bonds. And that 4% is the base from which fixed rate mortgages are fixed. So your fixed rate mortgage will be, what, five and a half, possibly six, depending how much you want to borrow as a multiple of your house. That's not the end of the world. Although, of course, if you've never seen this before, it's horrendous. Oh, we needn't worry about that. I just want to spend a little moment talking about monetary disequilibrium. Look at that spelling, isn't that ridiculous? I've only just noticed it. <laughs> it's supposed to say disequilibrium. This, this is a sort of, uh, it's probably a Welsh language version. <laughs> right. We have, a, have had an inflationary boom due to excess money. What does that mean? I think each household, think of yourselves, has a figure they expect to see net in their current account when they get their bank statement. You have a figure in mind. And if you're like me, you go straight to that figure. And if the figure is in line with what you expect, you don't even check the columns. You go, that's about right, file. Is that what you do? <laughs> Good for you. I mean, life's too short to spend Saturday going through your bloody bank statements. Well done. I do the same. Now, there's two types of disequilibrium. You can have excess money. And when you've got excess money, you say, I shouldn't have all this sitting there getting 0.3%. You spend it. Or if you don't, someone else in the house spends it. Yeah? Now the thing is, with monetary disequilibrium, you spend it and you've got rid of it. Great. I've got a nice case of wine from Tanner's just down the road. My daughter's got a very expensive pair of trainers for her birthday and uh, my wife has been away for a three-day spa. This all sounds familiar, I'm sure. But you see, the money doesn't leave the system. You spend it, it ends up in someone else's account and they go, oh no, I've got all this excess money. And they, the faster we try and spend excess money, 
the faster it actually comes back if you're running a business. We've had such a great year. Here's your bonus. Oh, I thought I got rid of that. You see the point? That's what's been happening. That's why you couldn't get a restaurant table. That's why you couldn't get a seat on an aircraft. This is why you can get any hotel in the sun this year. Right. Now, we're going through that and it's now diminishing because prices are beginning to erode that excess money purchasing power. And increasing number of people in our country are moving into disequilibrium Normally they're the bottom third of society because their food bill and their energy bill has risen significantly. When you're in monetary disequilibrium, you try and build your account back to the level you're comfortable with by cutting non-essential spending. You want evidence of this, don't you? Well, you're going to get it. Look at the blue bar. The blue bar is the change in household bank balances. It's not the total size of the balance, it's the change. And normally, household bank balances rise around six billion a month. That's when the economy is running normally. When there is a lockdown and you can't spend, you're furloughed, so the income's still coming in, then you're not running with a six or seven billion, you're running with an 18 billion increase in your bank. Not you personally, the whole system. Right. That money, about 180 billion, uh, its purchasing power is being eroded, but it's still out there. It's not in the bank accounts of the bottom three, but it is in the bank accounts of the upper end. Which raises a really important point. If you're in the high end, whatever business it is, you're the premium end, sales might fall off a little, but not much. If you're right at the bottom end of the market and you're cheap kebabs or you're cheap pizzas, you're going to be fine. If you're in the middle of the market, that's where you're going to feel it. So if you're a... I, I can give you an example. I was walking past Coates, out here somewhere. Coat the brasserie. It's just over there. Yeah, and four down from my house is the chairman or chairwoman of Coates. And ten days ago I said, look, how's it going? She said, very interesting. People are coming in less often, but when they come in, they're spending a lot more. She said, dining in our restaurants has gone back to special treat, birthday, you know, friends from work, as opposed to, let's just have a bit of lunch. So business is fine for her because she said, you know, if I get a lot of people in a group, then I can manage my staffing more easily. But she's still short of staff. Anyway, that's just an aside. If you look at this year, I don't know whether you can see it on the chart, January, 
excess money, people splurged. And then you see the, 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 the change in the account coming back to normal. And then you see, I think it's April, you see them going below normal. And when they're below normal, that's when people immediately cut back their non-essential spending to bring it back. And then in April, May, you get the media talking about energy bills could be doubling or tripling. Then middle-class households tend to say, hmm, I need to run with a bit of a higher uh, float in my current account. And the consequence of this is retail sales. Retail sales were doing just fine until April. Now retail sales are, are falling in real terms, not in money terms. Spend is still up about 9-10%, but in real terms they're falling. And that's because households are trying to maintain their monetary equilibrium. Will retail sales go on falling? No. This is the adjustment to the high energy cost reality. And let's go back to it. If energy prices, six months time, are not as high as everyone forecasts, you'll see retail sales recover quite well. Oh, this is just looking at retail sales month on month, which takes out the previous year effect. Don't have to worry about that too much, except you can see month on month, it's negative. So let's look at the economy as a whole. And this is uh, real GDP, quarterly change. And um, the economy is slowing down. But you see that minus 0.1 in July, which is where the governor of the Bank of England said we are in recession. Actually, he was wrong, because the technical definition of recession is two successive quarters of negative growth. And the other issue, 0.1 is within the statistical error. In this data, the error can be as, as, as 0.3 either side or zero. So 0.1 could easily be plus 0.2. So the media go big on this. Please don't pay attention. So let's look at pay growth. Who's got the money? Well, our favourite friends, real estate. They've done very, very well, thanks to the housing price boom. And then we've got the hospitality sector. Yes, from a very low base, wages have risen significantly. Finance and insurance, they're always ahead of inflation. If you look at your... Uh, car your car insurance renewal. <coughs> I, I had to renew my car. 13 years, no, no five year, 15 years no claim bonus. I thought it would go up by about 30 quid. Went up by 130 pounds. They're always ahead of it. Those guys, if you're a supplier to the financial sector or the insurance sector, Raise your prices, they got the money. 
And then you go all the way down, and of course down the bottom there, you've got education, mostly public sector. You've got public sector admin. Their wage growth is around 2.2%. In fairness, in the public sector, you go through a scale. And each time, you know, every year you move up a notch. And that gives you normally about 3%. So unless you're at the top, it's not as bad as the press are making out. Okay, so let's get a sense of incomes. And this is, we've split us into basically roughly tenths. And um, this is median, it's not average, median means the majority of people in this cohort so right at the top, the majority of people live on 63 grand. Now, there will be a change in taxation tomorrow, and it may be that those will have to live on 60. Is that terminal? So I just gave you these numbers, but so you will find that after tax income, right the way across those groupings except the bottom two, the after tax incomes are going to be lower next year. That's, that's what's going to happen tomorrow. I expect you've heard of the Purchasing Managers Index. Some of you may even contribute to it. It's a very good indicator, and this indicator shows us that in the last uh, three months, businesses in general have been reducing their order rate, partly because of overstocking. Overstocking took you know, the big boom in January. People say, we've got to get some stuff in. And now they find that the containers have arrived from China and the market has slowed a bit. So they're a bit stuck with a lot of stock. But hey, that happens a lot. Is this data saying there's going to be a deep recession? No. It does say there's going to be a slowdown, or rather it says there is a slowdown. If you look at equity markets, British share prices have actually gone back to the pre-COVID value, which is totally realistic as our economy has not grown in real terms compared to 2019. So the market is actually quite efficient. It's valuing companies, British companies, correctly. And this is the... UK index, what you hear on the media is the FTSE 100. Now they always say that in the FTSE 100 was X. The FTSE is no indicator of the British economy. 70% of FTSE 100 companies get their income from overseas. And it's in dollars. So when the exchange rate, when sterling drops against the dollar, the FTSE goes up, and vice versa. 
So don't pay any attention to the FTSE. This is much more indicative of what's happening to those mid-corporates, British companies. Now, my theme to you is that we're getting back to normal. And I want to make a plea. All of you do your business planning. Please disregard the last two and a half years. They're nuts. You shouldn't base any future business plan on data from the last two and a half years. Look at your trend up to 2019-20, because that is what is going to be repeated, adjusted, of course, for your competitive advantage. A statistician say, what I see there is a pattern with noise, and the noise is the COVID period. Yeah. Our economy in real terms this year will grow by 3.2%. Way above normal. We can't sustain that. We don't have enough people. We, don't, we haven't had enough investment. So let's look at the people issue. This is the demographics of the UK. Right side female, left side male. And I've drawn a vertical line at the entry of youngsters to the labour force. It starts, I don't know whether you can see it, right at the bottom there is 15 to 19 year olds. And it goes up in that sort of increase. Now, there is a significant reduction in the number of 15 to 19-year-olds. In fact, the number is 1.8 million. Someone did ask me the other day, so what happened around the millennium to the, why did the birth rate drop so dramatically? And I was trying to think why, and there are two approaches. One is 9-11, the Twin Towers, and I imagine quite a lot of people say, this world has gone nuts, I'm not sure I want to bring new life into it. And the other, which might be more convincing, is that's when the voice and X Factor started on the telly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a behavioural economist, but think about it. Look, I want to watch this. Get off. So... Anyway, the problem is there. The problem is there. And a lot of people are saying, oh, well, it's all going to come right. Uh, it's not. There's going to be a permanent shortage of labour for at least the next 15 years. And you may have heard that the number changed two days ago. 600,000 people in Britain have retired early in this last nine months. People around 55 just said, I'm out. We are desperately short of people. There's the arithmetic. We've lost 1.3 million EU workers. We've got 1.8 fewer 15 to 24-year-olds. 
There's 1.3 million advertised jobs, so that's the, the demand. It's now 600,000. We got new numbers two days ago. So supply, labour supply has fallen by around 3.6 million and demand has increased by 1.3. Which is probably why earnings in the first quarter of this year rose by 7%. And you will have heard on the radio recently, 6.1 I think is the most recent figure for the last quarter. So that's average. And if you understand the public sector's 25% of the market, where wages have been 2.2, so in the private sector, wages have been, it's an average, there'll be quite a few running at 10, 12, 15%. This is only going to moderate when demand gets back to what is sustainable. The only way out of this is innovation. The only way out of this is saying, look, we want to grow. How can we grow with the same number of people? What, what can we do? And I think everyone thinks of automation as robots, you know, welding cars together. It, it, that, yeah, that's the obvious automation. But the big automation is back office. It's simple bits of software for your invoicing process. It's simple bits of software for your accounting. And there's a huge growth in that market. And uh, there are solicitors now saying, yeah, we've got fantastic software. We don't have to go through big books to look up case histories. And uh, that's just going to go exponential over the next few years. Needs must. And uh, I'm sure, remember, British economic activity is determined by SME owners, and they are much more adaptable than big corporates. An SME moves much more quickly than a big company, just as well we've got them. Right. Liz Truss, I can remember her saying, saying, we have a growth target of 2.5%. That's what we have done on average since the war, and this is what our budget intending to achieve. And my wife said, what is wrong with you? Are you having a heart attack? I said, yeah, this is complete expletive deleted. And here's the fact. Our workforce will expand by 0.5% over the next few years. Look at the demographics. Our productivity since 2008 has been 0.5%. So if you're going to hit a 2.5% growth target, productivity has to quadruple. That, with the best will in the world, is not going to happen. So we have got to, until we get innovation really running hard, we've got to live with the fact that our non-inflationary growth rate at best is around 1.5%, not 2.5%. And if you look at that demographics, we've got an aging population. So the demand on the public purse for pensions and social support is just going to carry on growing until we have euthanasia. 
And I'm sure we're going to start talking about that. The, the Dutch have done it. And it seems, to, it seems to work, if you know what I mean. <laughs> You've got to be so careful these days, haven't you? <laughs> now, everyone bangs on about levelling up. And uh, one has the impression that the regional uh, differences in incomes are significant. But look at the data. They're not that particularly significant at all. And again, this is the confusion between income growth and wealth. The increase in wealth has been much higher in the southeast because of rising house prices. But even this is changing. The northwest, Lancashire, house prices increased by nearly 15% last year. Southeast, they grew by about 3 So there is a levelling up on the wealth side and there's never been too much difference on the income side. So that's all a bit of a con. And a misunderstanding too. Unfortunately, for the reasons I hope I've shared with you, uh, we are the only country that hasn't got back to pre-COVID output. Uh, the only other country that's not done well is Germany. Uh, other countries, as you look at the data there, have done better than us. Why is our performance so poor? We've got to be absolutely clear about this. It's because the political context has been dire. Uh, and if, if, if you came down from Mars and you looked us, you'd say, what, what's wrong with this place? Why do they keep changing their prime minister? Why do they spend all their parliamentary time talking about parties? Why aren't they getting on with important things? And that's the problem. Government has done very, very little of any use. Furlough, yes. Vaccine, yes. And that's sort of where it ends. By the way, people in my pub think I'm a communist. Just so that you know. I am far from that, but they think, because I keep pointing this out, you're, you're talking the country down, you want a Labour government. I say, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is a storm. Because I, I, we're going live around the world or wherever we go, I don't want to use an expletive, although I'm very tempted. <laughs> so... I thought you might know a little bit about what Hunt is grappling with. Uh, on the, this is 21-22, so basically, here's the budget. There's the spend budget on the right. There's the receipts budget on the left. There is a gap. The two big spend problems are pensions and health and social care. They're the two budgets that, due to demographics, the growth isn't exponential, but it's not something you can cut back unless you do things like euthanasia or all the rest of it. So, if you translate, someone said to me, what is this black hole they're talking about? Well, there it is. Our deficit 
It, it changes month by month because of the flows in and the flow out. But our deficit is in round figures around 160, 170 billion. That was the forecast. It's been a bit less than that because of inflation. That increases the VAT income. Uh, and that is what uh, the Chancellor is going to try and bring back, but not eradicate. His policy will be a five-year plan to stop the deficit growing. Not bringing it down to zero. That, they won't do that. There's no need to. So, what's going on? I call it the big reset. The global system is resetting and we're part of that process. For us, our real growth rate at best, with lots of overtime, can be 2%. I'm aware, David, I'm getting to... Um, I think I'd go straight to the housing market because you all want to see that. Have I got five minutes? Okay. Uh, first of all, 80% of mortgages are fixed. Most of the people who took a mortgage up until August this year should be able to handle a 3% increase if banks did their job properly. Those who are on a floating rate mortgage have a floating rate mortgage because they've got lots of spare liquidity so they can handle an, incre an increase in rate. There is not going to be a housing crash. Very quickly, a third of homes are owned outright by the oldies. A third of homes are mortgaged. That is, people with growing families. A third of homes are rented. And of the rental, 50% is state, 50% is private. And I want to now show you a figure. The first-time buyer spent 3.6 time incomes. You will have read in the press seven times. And they'll say, this is outrageous, no one can afford a house. But you see, the press don't understand social change. A house today is typically bought by a couple. Typically. A flat is rented by a singleton. The majority of first-time buyers are couples. They've got two salaries, and if you look at the after-tax incomes, you're talking at combined household income of between 60 and 70K. And if you take a 3.6 times 70K, you come to the average price of the British house. But young people say, oh, you, you, you oldies, you had it so good, we don't. Well, this is my favourite slide. This is why no one talks to me in the pub. <laughs> that blue line is the inflation-adjust price of the average British house. That red line is the trend line, established it from 1975. The real price of a British average house today is exactly the same as it was in 2003. But incomes are 6% higher. So I'm afraid the case is that houses today are a bit more affordable than they were in 2003. But no one wants to hear that. Conclusions. Oh, there's more stuff here. 
This is my best case. I think inflation next year will be around 6%, tailing off to the back end of the year. If it's a warm winter, real growth could still be not plus, sorry, 0.3%. We could just avoid a serious, serious, I'm using the wrong word, a downturn, but I expect it's going to be around 1.5. That is not terminal. I think base rate will top out at 3.75. Wage growth next year will be running around 5. The rate of increase will come down a bit because unemployment will begin to pick up a bit, but it will still be, this time next year, we will be at over full employment. And house price growth, I think, will be zero. So, you as a business will only be able to grow in real terms if you take market share off a competitor or if you sell abroad. Because the cake is fixed. Um, and, of course, the clear-out of zombie businesses will allow resources to be better used, which will be good for productivity. And the only route to growth is innovation. And SMEs are very good at it. So that's the outlook. I'm sorry it was such a dump, but uh, you've got it now. And my update is due in the second week of December, and quite a lot of this will be in it, obviously brought up to date. I'm really happy to answer any questions you've got, or if you're upset and want to say, I think you're talking rubbish, please say it, because then we can find out why. David. Thanks, Roger. Uh, we've asked Roger to whistle through that because we wanted to allow time for having a bit more of a debate and a Q&A in here. All those slides will be sent out to you tomorrow anyway, anyway by email. So. That stops the first question. We've also got some questions that might come in from the uh, streaming viewers as well. So Verity is going to try and sure. feed those in as we are. But does anybody want to kick us off? I'll pass you the microphone so that everybody can hear you and it's recorded. So hold it there, Pete. Can you hear me? Yeah, is that all right? Um, it sounds positive overall. Yes. What you're saying, Roger. Yeah? Yeah. Good. Okay, good. Um, the point on, you made about the, the house prices being affordable... Yep. Was that based on one person buying it in 1970, but two people buying a house today? The 2003, it was two people. It, it switched from one person to two people in the sort of late 80s. Okay. So it's affordable from the point of view of two people buying a house as opposed to one person buying a house? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Oh, flow over here. I'm going to get fit in this. On the chin. Very good. Take it on the chin. Take it on, literally take it on the chin. Um, last time we spoke um, was whenever it was in, when it was last year, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. We talked about Brexit. Yeah. Sorry to mention Yeah. We talked about Brexit very much tonight, but you talked about innovation being a solution or the solution. What about joining, rejoining the single market to create... Uh, the workforce that we need. Right, economic, 
Economically, that's the obvious solution. But there is a political overlay. And when I think of the people that I try and educate uh, in my neck of the woods, they are, to a person, comfortably retired. And they have bought this, we need freedom from an oppressive bureaucracy in Brussels. And you can't shift them. And I actually had to take a subscription to the Daily Telegraph to see where they were getting all the nonsense from. And I can see where they get it from. But if you're going to be rational, it's obvious we shouldn't have left. And it's actually obvious too, if we went back in, we would benefit. There's something called Horizon, which is a pan-European exchange of research. We're not part of it at the moment. That is a massive loss of capability. If we want to innovate, we've got to be in that sharing PhD group. There's so many things we've got wrong. We're duplicating European chemical legislation and it's costing the British chemical industry 2.5 billion in double um, approvals. It's, it's madness. Don't, don't start me. <laughs> I think you, you could pick that up again after Florian, I'm sure. I uh, just want to take one question from the stream that's come in um, from Ali, saying, hi, Roger. Why is the Bank of England inflation target 2% when the money supply growth is 5%? Right, great question. And the answer to that is because normally we expect real growth up to around 3%. See, that money supply of 5% has got to finance real growth. And if we can get... 3% real growth, you know we can't now, then the inflation rate is 2%. And if you take the 2% inflation target and you look at what we've talked about, then money supply growth actually should drop back to around 3%. Okay, thank you. There's one more. That's the well answer, Ali. Ali. <laughs> there you go, Ali. And there's one more from, from online from Sarah saying, what's your view on 2024 uh, for an election and the potential change of a prime minister again? So again, a bit political rather than economic. All right, well, politi I, I, th I think there are still a lot of people who think uh, Rishi Sunak is a mistake because he um, is wealthy. And that gives Starmer a lot to go on. But, of course, he did quite well as a hedge fund bloke for three years, but most of his wealth is his wife's. Um, I still think he'll be prime minister. I don't think the, the Tories will ditch him because their reputation is such a bunch of hopeless people. They, they can't do it again. But of course the question is whether they win the election. And I think there is a chance if that budget tomorrow really does recognise, you know, what's called the red wall, the, those new conservative voters, many of whom are at that bottom third. If they do something sensible there, then they might get away with it. Otherwise, I think Starmer just has to stay stum, not doing anything silly, and in he comes. Yeah, you mean Tories will keep him as the leader, and then it's a question of which party wins the election. Sorry, say that again. You said, that you said earlier the Tories will keep him as Prime Minister. You mean they'll keep him as their leader. The question is whether they win the next election. Well, they win the, it depends on tomorrow's budget. 
but I think at the moment it's 50 50. Any more questions in the room? Yeah, the can I just get the, uh, the mic to you? Sorry, yeah, thanks. Yeah, much of our problems seem to have come from quantitative easing. Yep. Do you think there was any other way to cope with the pandemic? No. Uh, so no. you think where we're at now was inevitable, given yep. the pandemic? And yeah, I think it was inevitable. I mean, just cast your mind back before we had a vaccine. Before we had a vaccine, everything shut. And if it was a rush job, of course it was. And of course, there have been lots of excesses. Uh, was it too much? In hindsight, it might have been. But hindsight is a wonderful thing. I don't think any government should have done anything differently. And uh, if you want to look at the big, big, big driver of global money supply, it was America. They created $7 trillion out of thin air. So even if we hadn't done what we have done, the global inflation rate would still be elevated. And do you think any of this is still the legacy from the quantitative easing in 2008? Uh, the zombie business thing is, uh, but otherwise I think that is largely through the system. Yeah. Thank you. Got another question from online from David. He's asked, it's sort of related really. He's saying how much of the current inflation, the increase in prices, is down to excess cash in the system as opposed to people competing for scarce resources? <laughs> well, you see, that's a very interesting. They're the same thing. Excess cash means people are competing for scarce resources. But if you, to rephrase the question, how much of our current inflation is on the demand side? And how much is on the supply side? It's, for me, at least 80% on the demand side. The excess cash is much more, much more important than this disruption of supply chains due to COVID. Okay, thank you. Any other questions from the room? Oh, Jim, hang on a minute, Jim. Thanks. Um, you spoke about the excess cash that sat with the banks looking to lend it, and the view on the quality of people to lend to. Yeah. With a 6% mortgage rate, still political uncertainty, do you think the quality's out there and the certainties for that money to be lent? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think, I, I, over the, I've worked with the banks on and off for 40 years, and I know that they've got some very simple ideas, which is, Look, we can only get volume by lending to dodgy people. Maybe 10% of them will go wrong, but that still gives us a net gain. So, yeah, I, I don't expect the banks themselves to tighten mortgage lending rules. It's a volume business. Oh, business. Ah, ah, right. Well, when it comes to lending to businesses, banks don't, as a general rule. They, to lend to a business is far too complex for them, and they don't have an algorithm. The only way they understand the risk of lending to a business is spending an hour with you and find out what the vision is, how it works. And, of course, they don't do that. 
Only 12% of British bank lending is for growing businesses. 70% is mortgages. If the business has lots of real estate that it owns, not a problem. I'm afraid that's our system. Working capital, yeah. I mean, if you've got an overdraft and you've got a relationship with them, the way to work with a bank, if you think you're going to need money from them, get in touch before you need it. Don't say, I've got this issue, my working capital is it, I need 100k. Say, we're looking ahead at this next year and I, we think in the second quarter we might have a cash problem, so we'll need 100k. Then they realise you know what you're doing and they'll be much more inclined to lend. But the basic rule of banking is only lend to people who don't really need the money. Yes. I'm afraid that's how it is. Did you have a question? Yes, on the inflation. Um, oh, sorry. You suggested that inflation by early 2024 will be down at 4% with a base rate at 3.75. Yep. Does that imply that the Bank of England will ditch their 2% inflation targeting? Mm -hmm. Possibly. I honestly don't know what they're going to do about that. I'd... I just don't know. I just don't know. The reason why they might not change it is that the 2% is, is the global central bank standard. And if we changed it, uh, if we made it lower, then we're squeezing unnecessarily. If we made it higher, the foreign exchange markets will say, sterling would drop. So I think you've got, this is the herd behaviour of countries. You've got to be very similar with each other, otherwise the markets drive a wedge between you. Yeah. A question from Nick, and then I'll come back over to you, John. Yeah, just a, just a quick one. Just joining together two things you said before, um, Horizon 2020 innovation funding and growth through innovation is going to be where it's coming from, which I agree. Um, next year, is there going to be a switch to the shared prosperity fund? Do we have an idea if it's going to even match the innovation funding of EU? Well, I think we've had some ideas that it's certainly not going to match. And it's not really making much progress, as far as I can understand. So, yet it's another example of something that's absolutely essential. And nothing's really moving. I'm afraid you look across all government departments... It's because the ministers have been doing what they're doing. So hopefully everybody else is doing R&D tax credit. Oh, you, it worked for you? Yes. You, and you, you got it all through the system without too much hassle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, good, good. If anyone is looking to get some support for innovation, they should talk yeah. to you. Is it, your, you is it your business? Is it your business? It was my business. Okay, okay. Good. Roger, um, I noticed earlier that you said that um, your forecast for house price growth in 2023 was zero, flatlining. Yep. That sort of flies in the face of a lot of economists that I've read. Yeah. Um, Savills, Knight Frank. Yeah. Lloyd's tend to sort of 18%. Yeah. There's a lot of negativity around house prices. Yeah. Um, and my, I suppose my question is, is the UK going to try and grow itself through building more houses out of recession? 
um, as it has done in the past. I mean, a lot of housing associations' credit ratings have been downgraded. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, local authorities' um, purses have squeezed. Yeah. Who's going to pick up the slack from the private sector not building or not having the confidence to build as many homes? So... The assumption you're making is the private sector won't build the same number of homes. I think the confidence has gone in, in some of the larger construction companies. I think you're absolutely right. And we know why the confidence went. And I'm just expecting tomorrow some signals for confidence to return. Because you know, this from September through October... People ask me, what's going on? I say, I've absolutely no idea. This is such a complete and utter crash. And of course, yeah, all the major house builders you know, and their valuations all dropped. But people are going to start realising that there are at least two adults running the country at the moment. And maybe it's time to look at the market need, which is there. So I don't think, the, I think the volume house builders will come back, certainly second quarter of next year. Okay, thank you. There's another reason why it's not a good idea to uh, build now, and that is, you know, a, a, a block was 60 pence a unit and it's now 145, you know, breeze blocks, and that is all going to come back down middle of next year. So I don't think it's a permanent feature. I hope okay. I'm right. Thanks, John. Anyone else? Oh, Florian, so having another look, then I come back over there. Uh, so we were promised lots of free trade deals to oh, yeah. uh, mop up, uh, mop up post uh, Brexit, um, and um, there was this comment about the uh, Australian yeah. free trade deal, and that actually the, the environment minister, former environment yeah. environment minister, said it was a crock of whatever. Yep. Um, what are the chances that we're going to get some other free trade deals and that they can actually mop up the, uh, the deficit that we've, that we've now got? Or are they actually not important to the, to the growth? Oh, they are important, but we're not going to get them. That we need. What we've got to do, and I think Sunak is showing signs of this, we've got to start talking to our neighbours in an adult way and find ways of making it easier for them and us to trade with each other, instead of being little Englanders, which is where we've been. And it's had an impact on French and German manufacturers who are increasingly saying, do you know what, you left, you're a pain in the arse, and we can't be bothered. And that's a problem for us, both on the buy and the sell side. But I think there, is, there are glimmers of the adults have come back into the room. Ah, oh, so do I. If, if, if it, they're not, then all this is wrong. Okay. Put that in. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Hi. Hi. Uh, I admire your optimism when it comes to the effect of uh, energy prices on the economy in the next year or so. Um, my take is that perhaps we're looking at sort of two to three years before 
anything starts to get back to anywhere near normal. Uh, I take what you say about LNG sitting offshore for the continent. Um, my understanding is that they've got the storage capacity, which is currently full of Russian gas, but they don't have the, the, uh, the terminals to bring it in. Sure. Whereas we're the other way around. We have the terminal capacity. We don't have the storage. But no storage. Um, we're currently selling electricity to the French by burning a load of gas. It would be the other way around at this time of year. Um, and even if, miraculously, the Ukraine war were to suddenly stop tomorrow and we wanted to go buy Russian gas again, we couldn't because they blown the pipeline up. So yep. we're then on LNG, which is trading in a global market because we used to be in a continental market. Yeah. And now we're in a global market with LNG, which is 10 15% price increase on pipeline yep. because of the way that it's transmitted. So yep. I, I just don't see how the fundamentals can translate into the prices coming down. Well... When I say prices coming down, they're not going to go back to 2019 levels. But I don't think they're going to remain four times those levels, which is what we've seen. And I, d I, just, don't get, I, d I just don't see that being sustained. I, I, I think we'll see that the spot price of gas come down sharply unless it's a really cold winter. But that, then I think you're right if it's a very cold winter. Um, is your job getting any easier? Uh, where I'm coming from is you've got access to increasingly refined levels of data. You talked about the LNG and the ships offshore. And that sort of thing wasn't available years ago. But conversely, you talked about media influence before. Is that adding unpredictability? Yeah. What we've got is a lot more data but less understanding. And uh, you see, the idea that economists really know how the economy works is wrong. Now, I've got an approach which so far seems to have worked, uh, so I'm winging it. But when you see all these, you know, the big four, OECD, the Bank of England model, those models are just that. They, they aren't real indicators of how our system works. They are based on assumed relationships many of which are wrong. For example, in the Bank of England model, money supply data is not used because the Bank of England spent two million quid trying to get workable equations and some relationship between money supply and activity. Couldn't do it because velocity is almost a random walk. So their model is done in real terms. That's why, of all the forecasters, the Bank of England's model is the worst. Money, I hope I've showed you this, and this is based on me looking at this system for 40 years now. It, money drives activity, although lots of economists say it follows activity. I don't... Very simply, their view of life is... You go into a bank on a Saturday afternoon and say, I'd like to borrow 100 grand. And the bank says, what for? Well, interest rates are low. I was passing and I thought, why not? 
You only borrow money because you've got a reason to spend it. Money drives spend. We've got time for one more in the room before the break and we lose the streamers. Oh, Sue, hold on over here. Um, net zero, how do you factor that into your forecasts and you know, from carbon taxes sure. potentially? And Sure. I, you, you, you hear people saying, well, you know, the green economy means that we're going to grow more slowly. I don't buy that at all. What you do is you change the mix of growth. For me, green is gold dust in terms of opportunities and new ways of doing things. Yet it will drive out stuff that isn't green, zombie. And there'll be lots of new stuff that is green and valuable and creates GDP. We won't hit net zero. We won't. The world won't. I mean, it's one of those targets that will not be attained. Uh, We might attain it in 100 years, but we're certainly not going to attain it by 2050. However, you know and I know that we are making big steps in how renewables are becoming, for today, renewable energy is cheaper than uh, uh, natural resource energy, natural gas. So, yeah, I think there's a huge future providing governments keep pushing the agenda to give consultancies, to give young people deciding to do environmental studies at university, so you you grow your capacity to really create uh, carbon neutral activity. Perfectly possible, just needs mindset. And it's not anti-growth, as people say it is. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Sue. That question brought us banging on time for seven o'clock. So if you listen to Radio 4, you know they often say we leave our, we lose our world service listeners now. So we now leave, leave our, our streamers online. And thank you to all of them for, for joining us and thanks for their questions. And in the room here, I know Roger said earlier on that the people in his local village don't like to go for a drink with him in the pub. So we're here to correct that for this evening. And I suspect a few of us may wobble on after here to whatever local hostelry will have us all. So thank you very much again, Roger. Great Pleasure. debate. Let's show all our appreciation, please, to Roger. Thank you. Well, the fun continues. We can carry on quizzing Roger while all standing sure. up, maybe with a beer or a sandwich in hand. The buffet's arrived at the back, so please avail yourselves of whatever's back there. We've got an hour before we get kicked out, uh, and so please uh, collar Roger with any of the other burning questions that you didn't get a chance yeah, sure. to answer. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Thank you. So there you go. That was the live stream from the talk given by Roger Martin Fagg this week. I hope you got something useful out of out of what he had to say in these current very interesting times. Please subscribe to the SME Growth Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and tell all your business friends. The next episode, we'll be talking about setting up a hybrid event like the one you just heard, including the choice of venue and the audio and the video and the provisioning of all the refreshments included as well. So tune in for that.